Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone. I hope you are having a wonderful day. We are on to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland. I'm your host. And today we have two guests, Dr. Jared Dempsey and Hunter Williams of Track 9. So Dr. Dempsey is actively involved in neurological and physiological research in the addiction field. His recent publications include Preliminary Evidence for a Biological Marker of Addiction Recovery, Non-Conscious Emotional Response to Drug Stimuli, and the Influence of Social Anxiety on Addiction Treatment. Dr. Dempsey has also served as an expert reviewer for the Journal of Motivation and Emotion, Psychopharmacology, the Journal of Psychopathology and Behavioral Assessment, the American Journal on Addictions, addiction psychiatry research, and Dr. Dempsey was the lead scientist behind the development of Track 9 Informatics, a comprehensive tool for substance use disorders and mental health treatment, which provides evidentiary support for clinical monitoring, outcomes, supervision, and success forecasting. And Hunter Williams is also part of Track 9 and is going to share his experience in his own recovery using the Track 9 system. So I really enjoyed this interview. It was great to talk to Dr. Dempsey about why data, outcome data, is so important in treatment to create successful treatment for people who are struggling with addiction and often how that data can help us be better clinicians and help clients get recovery and how that data can actually help clients directly when they can see these outcomes in front of them. And we just dive into all of the research, the tools, how they do that, and why they're building this system. There's some real nuggets of insight that I didn't even realize that the research shows us that would be counterintuitive. 
So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. So stay tuned for that. If you are getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help the podcast get found. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. It shows me that people are getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast and that the efforts go into it are meaningful to individuals out there who may be struggling with addiction or are helping someone who's struggling with addiction. So thank you all who have taken the time to do that. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast. So check that out. Follow us there. And you can join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind Podcast, click join. All right, everyone. Stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. I've got two great guests today from Track 9, Dr. Jared Dempsey and Hunter Williams. And they're going to talk about their platform to help people who are struggling with addiction and substance use disorder get better, get recovery. And they're going to talk about the science behind it and the science behind collecting data and using good information to really help people who are struggling with addiction. So let's have you both introduce yourselves. Dr. Jared Dempsey, you want to introduce yourself first and then Hunter Williams, you can introduce yourself too. And just why did you get into this field? What are you doing? Why do all this work? Excellent. Yeah, happy to do it. Yeah, Dr. Jared Dempsey. I am a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist. I received my doctorate in clinical psychology from Texas Tech University and then went to the Medical University of South Carolina and did a postdoc and residency in addiction science. After that, I worked as a professor for about 10 years. My research specialty is in addiction recovery. During that time, I got a little frustrated with the field. I mean, we have, it's very difficult to make changes in any field unless you have any, you have a common ruler, a common way of measuring how are these locations doing and what happens afterwards. And at that time, it essentially was the Wild West. This was before Joint Commission actually came out and said, hey, you got to do standardized assessments. So I actually left academia to start this company out of frustration from the field because you would have many different treatment centers all claiming wild things such as we have a 99% success rate. And I would say, that's great. Where's your Nobel Prize? You've cured addiction. (laughs) Yeah, And so we all needed to come together to, to have a common metric that everyone can access so we know how people are performing at different locations. So that's sort of how I evolved into this. So I'm a scientist at heart, but I need some great business folks like Hunter to come along because I am not a businessman. I'm a scientist. Right. It's all it's all gotta gotta work together. And I definitely can relate to that working in this field too, where yeah, all kinds of wild claims and trying to put together a program based on science, evidence-based practices, measures is challenging. So I'm excited to jump into this and and to hear more about how you've put this together. And Hunter, do you want to introduce yourself as well? Yeah, happy to. Hunter Williams. I've been with Track 9 for almost half a year now. How I got into this field, my father was a very brilliant, successful attorney. And you know, years ago, we lost him to alcoholism. And so I saw it take down in my eyes a giant. I personally partied too much in my 20s, uh, so I have, you know, not only seen it from the family standpoint, but I personally 
gone through it. So I actually worked in the admissions, getting people in at a very large corporation for about four years. And, you know, so I, I was very influential in getting people in the door, but wasn't really, I had no responsibility post treatment, right? Or what happened actually in the facility. So I stepped away from that. And then I, I learned about what Dr. Dempsey had created through a colleague that I'd established a good relationship with at that previous company. And when I saw what he was doing, I, I, mean, I just, I, I don't really feel like my role is, is so much sales as, as it is educating facilities and giving them an opportunity to, to demo track nine. And of course, at the end of the day, it is a business. So we try to make it, it work, you know, from a business standpoint, right, right. but that's kind of how I got involved in what my role is with track nine. Thank you. All right. Well, let's, let's kind of jump in. Let's talk first about some of these problems that I think, you know, as I've worked in the field, have experienced and what you were experienced, Jared, as you, as you started to like, look at these facilities and go, Hey, what, what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, w w the wild claims that we had been seeing, you know, when I dug into it, it turns out that a lot of these treatment centers are using, were using instruments that they just created themselves and then cherry picking results and displaying certain metrics. So when, when I decided to start the company, one of the things that I wanted to do was model some of uh, Google's original company motto, which is do no evil. So you first have to start by looking at what's wrong with the field right now. And when I say field, I'm referring to outcomes, assessments. So the biggest dirty secret in our field, which we had to decide initially if we're going to do this, we have to do it right, is every one of them that we're aware of, and we're the only company that doesn't do this, they legally own all of your patient data. So you're a treatment center assessing your patients and getting this medical information they legally own it, not you. And of course, it's worth a tremendous amount of, of money to own data like this. But uh, I had to side with ethics and morals rather than finances. So our approach was, look, first things first, the treatment centers own their own data. That's, that's inappropriate. So we put it in writing. That's the number one question people need to ask. The second thing is, if you want to build a system that's truly going to benefit the entire field, you've got to set it up to where People can use you, yes, but they still benefit if they don't use you. Right. So we purposefully selected public domain, scientifically validated instruments. So each one, when we talk about what are we collecting, any treatment center in the world could can start collecting them today at no charge. When we talk about the what anxiety measure do we assess, that's a Penn State worry questionnaire. What depression? Center for Epidemiological Study Depression. Now, when you create norms with this data, with instruments that anybody can utilize, now we've got a common metric and people can utilize and collect this data without using company A, B, or C. So that was the structure and approach we took with developing the company. We wanted to make a difference, not just for people who decide to use us, but for people who perhaps want to use their own system or a different system, they can still benefit from the norms to understand what's happening with the patients. Right. So talk a little bit more about when you're talking about publicly available assessments, like what does that mean for someone who doesn't have that kind of knowledge of understanding, like what are we talking about 
And also the other question that's kind of starting to pop in my mind too is just the realization of how valuable this data is on, in so many ways and protecting that data. Yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about the instruments, standardized public domain, so when you say an instrument is standardized, and so for a lot of people, if the listeners are affiliated with treatment centers, some of them will be quite familiar with this. Standardized means it's been vetted in scientific literature to show that it's assessing what it's supposed to assess and that it's reliable. Right. Now, when you talk about public domain, what that means is the authors of that instrument have listed the actual questions and responses and metrics so anyone can use it royalty-free. So, for example, you could collect a measure on depression and you could use, for example, the Beck Depression Inventory. Well, that is not in public domain. Right. It's a great instrument, but you're going to pay about a dollar each time you collect that instrument. Last time I checked. Then there are instruments like the CESD, Center for Epidemiological Study Depression, hundreds of thousands of scientific studies around the world, very solid instrument, and it's a beautiful instrument to assess depression. And they publicly disclose the questions and how you score and collect. So there is no fee associated right. with using it. And the problem is if you're using companies and you gather years of data and they created their own proprietary instrument that is not in public domain, well, you're locked in to use that company forever, or you're going to have a disconnect if you decide to switch to a different company. And I wanted this to benefit everyone. Right. So you can't get that data. You can't, you can't use that data outside of that instrument because then that, that's going to skew the data or the data is not going to be available in that, in that same kind of way. To be able to use it. Yeah, or you're just not permitted to or use you just, it oh. because it's a proprietary copyrighted instrument. Oh, I didn't even realize that. So you can't even use the data if you wanted yeah. to, uh, to to be able to benefit the research that, that we need, especially on substance abuse, to be able to understand what's going on. So let's, let's jump in and talk a little bit more about some of these instruments and why collecting this data is so important in the first place. And, and also why we can't just make up our own instrument because we have to vet that instrument to make sure it's it's valid but let's let's talk about that sure which one did you want to start on well let's just talk about i guess i'm asking a lot of questions at once let's talk about what are these instruments why do we need to collect this data why right. is this so important why, why do this and how is that going to help people how is that going to help someone who's struggling? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so think about it like this. All of us in the entire world who are focused on this pandemic of addiction that's going on, what our goal is, is to help people enter into sobriety, a life of sobriety. And oftentimes people can get a little myopic where they focus on what happens afterwards, what happens afterwards. Well, pause for a second and think about what causes the outcomes. What causes if they stay sober or not? And that is the treatment, what's happening inside the treatment building. So you want to be able to monitor how all of these symptoms are changing across time per patient. So for example, we collect stress. That's one of the nine variables that we collect on a regular basis. Well, stress is the number one predictor of relapse. So if a patient is doing very well, they're committed to staying sober, but they're getting towards the end of treatment and you are able to watch their stress is higher than normal 
and reactive, and every time they become stressed, cravings increase. Well, then the medical professional knows, okay, they still have this self-medication reflex where when they become distressed, they start craving. Then they're able to target that with that individual, teach them the skills that they need to resolve that, and then thus it affects the outcomes. And so with each person, you need to know, have we resolved trauma? Are they able to respond to stress in a healthy way? Are they still clinically depressed? We need to monitor a full battery of symptoms and how they're changing across time so that we can help them enter into a life of sobriety. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And I think what's important to note here too, even, you know, as a clinician myself, and I love outcome measures. I've used some other tools in our own practice on measuring outcomes because oftentimes, even if you're an incredibly great clinician, you can't always see that, right? Yeah. You, it's not always totally apparent when the the client is, is sitting in front of you. And if you have these measures, mm-hmm. sometimes you can get that data that says, oh my gosh, we got to adapt treatment or we got to change treatment or something's happening here that w- you can't see is sitting in the room. I don't know if that makes sense. And It absolutely does. Think about this. When you ask a patient, how's your mood been this week? That is vastly different from saying, has your appetite changed? How are you sleeping? There's so many factors that go into things like depression that we don't necessarily have the time to dig into all constructs. Now, here's the other thing that is we are well aware of in many fields and yet is underutilized. Patients in medicine and in psychology and mental health and addiction are reliably more honest and disclose more on paper than directly communicating to a provider. So I'm not saying that they don't tell the truth, but oftentimes we may not even be aware of changes that occur. I mean, Dwayne, you're a therapist as well. You're familiar with the just noticeable difference hypothesis where if things change too slowly, we as a human aren't even aware of it. So we may have an incremental decrease in symptoms over time, and subjectively we say, I don't think things are changing. But when you see it in black and white, you go, oh, yeah, that's decreased by 25% over the last X weeks. Yeah, definitely. Monitoring that is is so important. I was also thinking like oftentimes when somebody is in treatment for addiction and they relapse, once they kind of go back, they can see those those things that they they couldn't see until the relapse, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. so having that data then and there and saying, look, you're at you're at risk here. We need to adjust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, the even the insurance companies are well aware of this. And I've had meetings with uh, chief medical officers, many of them at major insurance companies, and, and they would prefer to go the route where it's not the provider asking for extensions. 
but rather it's right. them saying, okay, statistically, no, we know if they leave with depression at this level, anxiety at this level, they're most likely to relapse. We'll pay for another week. Please keep them another week. Let's work on these issues. We can have a collaborative relationship with the payers where it's a win-win-win for everyone, but it all comes down to understanding how the patient's progressing and treating them as an individual. They, we can't paint by numbers here with how we treat people. They come with a variety of conditions, disorders, and different things that need to be worked on, which is why we need to closely monitor how all these symptoms are changing over time. Right. Yeah. And that's just, it's just so important to be able to provide that, that level of care. I'm also thinking about uh, going back to when, when you started and the treatment rates of success. You know, a lot of these treatment facilities would advertise incredibly successful rates like 90 we're 95 percent you mm -hmm. know people are in recovery which you know if you work in the field you know that's not accurate and that's mm -hmm. not true because this is a very it is a challenging medical issue to to treat so let's just talk about that rates of, of recovery and how this data helps us get real accurate information to to be able to really know where we're at yeah absolutely so you can look at standard results from the federal government and what is the rate of sobriety after they enter into residential treatment. And most of the estimates are going to put it around 25 to 30 percent of patients don't even finish a program. So wow. you have about a, an AMA rate leaving against medical advice, leaving early. Now, and let's not, all of us are well aware that leaving AMA from a residential addiction treatment center is not a trivial thing. Oftentimes this is overdose and death. And we've got about 30% yeah. of patients that are leaving AMA right now, and which could equate to death for many of those individuals. But we know from the research and from our data collection that you can get that down dramatically. And, and I'll tell you, this isn't a sales pitch. I can tell every treatment center, regardless of what system you use, we know exactly what needs to be done to decrease these rates, to increase the chance of sobriety. You know, and they're very simple. For example, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, Dwayne, but all of the data is showing us that patients will do much better if we don't just look at how the bad symptoms are doing and make sure they're coming down. You have to assess protective factors too, those resilience factors. You have to build the armor. So the system we collect are in those two domains. But here's the thing that everyone needs to start doing and therapists need to be aware of. We all know we've run clinical trials and not, and I say we with a capital W, scientists, that shows that if therapists look at standardized data in any field, when they're treating the patients, the patients exponentially increase in improvement. They improve much more. They've done many studies where they had half the patients, the therapist could see the standard results, and then the other half they didn't. And it's clear any therapist at any, any level, if they're looking at the results every week, that you will get a dramatic increase in the overall improvement of your patient. We calculate with our largest database in the world, over 2 million psychological batteries, that therapists looking at the data on a regular basis will increase your patient improvement by over 30%. And this is wow. consistent with all the scientific research. So regardless of what system or method you use, clinical directors, supervisors, you need a method to make sure your therapists are looking at the data 
that makes a huge difference. Yeah, being able to see that. And I, I would imagine from the client's perspective, that would be so incredibly helpful because like you said earlier, sometimes even as individuals, we don't realize where we're at. And, you know, it, it's so oftentimes, you know, people come in and they may do, you know, the PHQ-9 or GAD-7 mm -hmm. or something like that. And they don't even realize that they're struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that, you know, it's like, I'm just so used to this state that I don't even actually understand that I, I'm actually depressed. And mm -hmm. it's like a realization to them. You know, some some patients absolutely know they're depressed, they're severely depressed, but some kind of don't realize they have a low-level depression. And so having that data in front of them, I think, helps the client, helps the clinician, mm -hmm. and, you know, helps everybody involved. And that just makes a lot of sense that that would increase positive outcomes in this field. Right, right, absolutely. And let's take it at risk of losing the audience by going into too many statistics. I'll keep it very brief. I like statistics. So. I do too, I as well. I like data, so. so. Yeah, yeah. Go so into it. Think about this concept. We have measures right now where we can, you know, the GAD7, et cetera, all of these instruments. And we want to assess how is our patient doing? Is it appropriate to use that within an addiction population? Well, yes, but there's a big caveat. Those norms, those threshold cutoff scores, okay, a patient above a score of X, those were developed on non-addicts. It's a different population. Oh, interesting. Interesting, yeah. So when we look at, for example, like depression, and we look at where the demarcation line is for a healthy population that everybody's familiar and they say, okay, above this line, this person most likely has major depressive disorder. Okay, now let's pause for a second and say, I've done 2 million of these with people going into various levels of care. Where is that in reference to what would be expected for a normal patient entering residential addiction treatment during the first week? That point in which you would say for any person, oh, maybe they have major depression, is two standard deviations lower than the average score for a patient entering into residential treatment during the first week. Right, right. So do we classify every single one of them as major depressive disorder and let's throw in an anxiety? No, you need norms for the population you're working with. This has so many implications because we know that patients, some of these patients, oh, they're really struggling with depression. We need to give them extra services in this area. Well, how do you determine that? Treatment centers are going based off gut. Well, I think they look pretty bad, but right. we have the metrics to go, no, this is abnormal for someone in this level of care for this week of treatment. So we've got this little band by level of care, where it says what is a typical pattern by variable as they progress through treatment. And as they deviate and they're atypically high or low, it's pointed out to the therapist. Look, for someone in their third week of treatment, cravings are too high. This should be lower for a typical patient who's successful. That's what you need. So even when you have standardized data, you still need the norms for your particular population, which is what we are trying to publicly and freely give out to the community. You want to utilize these norms. You can. You want to collect it and not use our company. You can. You want to do it for free? It's available to anyone for free. Right. To be able to see that, that data in that way, I mean, that just really changes everything 
because you actually know what you're doing. <laughs> you're not just, you know, our gut is good, but our mm -hmm. gut is not always right and sometimes really wrong. But when you have this data collected in this, in the sense of all these other people too, you really, I guess, you know what's going on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And that gets even closer to the part where uh, we talk about predicting success or failure with patients. I was just going to, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that too. Now using this data to preemptively see what's coming down the road and being able to prepare for that and using, I guess, computer learning and algorithms mm -hmm. to predict where we need to move treatment. Yeah. So let, yeah, let's jump into that because that's really interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as a scientist, and I know that your audience is probably more familiar with the science statistics than the typical audience. As a scientist, we know that there are certain factors with patients that are going to make it more or less likely that they don't finish a program. You know, they leave AMA. That's your biggest risk factor at first. Can we get them to stay there and get the treatment? And with 30% of them leaving nationally, that's huge. That's very important. Yeah. But we know as a scientist, well, that's pretty dang easy. We could build out what's called just a logistic regression. That sounds complex. You know what that is? It's a set of numbers that predicts yes or no. And then you have to define right. what your yes or no is. Yes or no is, is this patient at li uh, likely to leave AMA in the future? Now, as uh, I have my own experience with being myopic, and the first rendition of the system, I thought, as this myopic scientist, I can create an equation from the data across the country that will predict if patients are going to leave AMA, and it's going to be wonderful, and I've got all of this data. Well, I was able to do it, but I could predict only about 20% of all future AMAs. Now, here's the secret, and this is what where the big difference came. Every treatment center is different. So yes, we could look at the science and say, if a patient admits directly from the emergency room to a treatment center, they're more likely to leave AMA. If a patient has a comorbid eating disorder, they're more likely to leave AMA. All of those are true, but that's globally true where it may not be as relevant per location. So once I started to build these algorithms or equations by the location, what is predictive for you, your program? That's where the beauty came in. We find that it's vastly different what predicts treatment failure or AMA at every individual location. So we built a predictive algorithm that scans the past year of data every single month. It's a rolling window. It looks at all the AMAs and all the successes, and it builds through an iterative process, meaning it's just trying to combine different variables and say, is this a better predictive model? It finds the best model for that one location and deploys it moving forward. And then every month it rebuilds itself, scanning the past year of data. And what was fascinating is what we found is number one, what predicts treatment failure drastically differs by location. And here's the fascinating that part to me. That is very interesting. <laughs> and here's the fascinating part. You change your CEO, you change your clinical director, you change your programming, what predicts AMA starts to change and shift. So wow, that's why that it rebuilds every month to take into account what's being predictive at your location. I'm just going to throw this out as a hypothesis, but I would say, you know, when you look at addiction as the, you know, the relationship component, if you want to call it the spiritual component, 
and you change a leader that changes the culture, that changes how we interact with clients, which then changes the outcome. And I would have never thought to take that into account. But now that you're saying that, it seems, yeah, that totally makes sense because the culture, we're human beings and we, I believe, we heal through relationships with others, right? Mm -hmm. That's how we really do our deep healing. And if the culture changes, yeah, you'd want to know that. Wow. That blows me away. Yeah. And it's fascinating what sorts of things predict treatment failure. I mean, we don't just look at what does the patient respond to on their first week assessment with track nine, with all these measures, depression, anxiety, stress. Yes, those potentially go into it, but we let the computer learning system actually scan through many variables, including things like risk ratios based on who the therapist is they're assigned to. Yeah. Risk ratios based on based on their drug of choice by gender, by age group. All of these factors are potentially at play. It's got hundreds of variables in it that it scans through and builds the perfect model for this one location. And the results are mind-blowing. I mean, there are things that I would have never assumed without computer learning, we wouldn't know this. How long does it take your therapist to go and look at that data? That often predicts if the patient is going to leave AMA, one of the factors. Does your therapist not look at it? Does your primary therapist traditionally not look at it across all their other patients? So you can build such a sophisticated model. And a lot of people think, how is this possible? You can't do this. It is a simple logistic regression where we are just using the data that's currently available and what's happening and using it to build a predictive model for that one location. And it's, it's, it's beautiful because we even do it by level of care. So what we see is what predicts someone leaving AMA from detox is different from that same location for residential, is different from that same location for outpatient. So all of these factors are different based on a variety of things. And then you can you can adjust as you get that data, as you get that information. And I love that you even say just just the clinician who's the maybe the primary care provider for that client is not checking that data, that would impact the client as well. And so you can figure out how to help that clinician check that data and and make adjustments. I think that's amazing. It's just like, wow, that's really, really super powerful. Oh, I think about it from the other side, too. So this is the part that, and I'll try not to go too much into the nerdy science stuff. This is the part that blew my mind, is that for some of the locations that are performing very well, we're seeing excellent outcomes. Yeah, how long it took the therapist to, to look at the data was predictive, but we saw an inverse relationship. The faster the therapist looked at it for these high quality treatment centers, the greater the risk of AMA. Now, my theory to that is they're on top of things. They know that this patient's in trouble and they're going to get that information instantly. Now, that's only for certain locations. Most locations, it's an opposite direction. You know, the longer they're taking. So it's, it's such a sophisticated process. But at the end of the day, it's just simple math predicting a yes or a no. Absolutely. So, okay, now I have another question because... What's coming up for me and some of my experience in trying to roll out outcome measures in treatment centers and stuff, the practical side of getting people to use it, getting people to be engaged with the data to make that happen and and do these assessments. I, I want to understand that. And maybe, Hunter, that's where you're going to come in because you've had some experience in, uh, from a 
the the clinical Absolutely. side of of doing that. But you know, just you know, getting that data right, like this right. data is rich, but we got to get it into the system for for that to happen. So I'm curious about that and that dilemma. Yeah. So I think once the facilities or the treatment programs see what Tracknon is capable of. Every facility is going to have a different way of implementing Track 9, but it's not a very complicated process. Where I went through Track 9, it was administered, you know, an iPad was handed to me that was safely locked down. So, you know, YouTube's not accessible. It's, it's sole purpose is, is right. for the assessment, which on average takes anywhere from 10, 15 minutes tops. And I go through and I take the assessment. Now, to me, I had a previous knowledge that this was very important data that it was gathering. So when I did sit down with my therapist and go over it, I too was, you know, surprised and not so much surprised in some areas, you know, like, wow, my spirituality is really low. Well, that's the first weekend that I went, you know, to treatment. Like it's normal. (laughs) Not many people go into treatment firing at all cylinders on a winning streak. Right. So my spirituality was, was low. My optimism was low. And what this does is it, it, it gave me information that I could personally work on as well as it equipped the staff to be able to look at these areas. So, yeah, it, I wouldn't say that it is that much of a daunting task to get the treatment facilities and everyone on board to administer the assessments, get the data. Yeah, does that make sense? So question. So you actually seeing some of this data too helped you as a client be able to understand yourself. That's what I'm, I'm Absolutely. hearing too. Like it was yeah. rewarding in a way, rewarding. I don't know if yeah, that's it, the right word. But and I'll tell you that um, it's actually encouraged. So what we see based on what we've learned so far, and I'd love your input, Hunter, on this, is that we tell the treatment centers, here's the best practice. Therapist, open it up and look at it at the beginning of individual therapy session. Show your patient. Because we have the just noticeable difference hypothesis where they don't, they're not aware of these changes. It's very motivating. They see that things are improving and what's not improving. We have a fortunate situation where we have multiple employees that actually were in treatment centers and taking this product years ago. And I love some of the things I've heard from them where they say, you know, I just felt like when I was sitting down to do therapy, we could get right to work. Like they knew everything that was going on in my mind and how things were progressing and we could just start the treatment. So showing the patient is going to be critical because they deserve to know how things are doing, but also that instills the motivation for them where they say, okay, there's a benefit to this. People are looking at it, they're utilizing it, and I see that I'm improving. Well, it's also empowering because oftentimes the clients who are at these locations, they may feel like all of the information is being withheld from them and no one's really giving them a sense of of where they are, maybe with the exception of their therapist. So just being able to have access to that One of the things that I, you know, the spirituality component, it confirms something that I'd personally experienced in life, but did not know how much it was actually rooted in science, how much my spirituality actually was directly uh, the direct correlation to my long-term success in recovery. Wow. And being able to to see that, I I think for a lot of clients, you know, my experience is they go into a treatment facility 
And it's kind of like this black box, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I'm just supposed right. to what I go, I'm supposed to just share what, you know, and, and, yeah. and kind of a mythical experience or, or there's supposed to be some kind of mythical experience. And it sounds like when you start to put it in, in, into this concrete way and look at it from a database perspective, you're actually formulating a treatment plan that a client can understand and that a clinician can understand and putting into progress because uh, you know what i seen in the, in the field is is kind of that mystery mystery some magical thing happens and recovery happens and mm -hmm. and we know that's not the case there's things that actually happen that help people get better yeah i i think if you you know one of the the things that i that i see happening is is people are really scared to be boxed in like well an assessment can't tell me my life's problems or like no piece of paper questionnaire is going to be able to tell me exactly what's going on. And then from the treatment facility standpoint, it does seem because it's so complex when it comes to addiction, because, you know, even without addiction, we're very complex creatures, right? With so many different variables, how much sunshine, vitamin D, exercise, sleep, it's already kind of, you know, a daunting task to try to assess someone. But when you're able to see, and I, I wish we we're able to actually show you some of track nine, not, not again, not to sound salesy, but when you're able to see it and break everything down and you see the charts and you can see the progression or, or opposite thereof, it, you know, it, it simplifies it to a degree that's digestible and can come up with a, an appropriate treatment plan per individual per facility, because each facility, as Dr. Dempsey mentioned, is its own ecosystem. Well right. said Hunter. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty amazing. So tell me like some of the, these measures that we're looking at, like what are some of the things we're testing for, we're trying to look at, like you had said, there's, I guess you would say on the negative side, looking at depression, but you also said there's all these resiliency measures too. And I just want to kind of know, give an idea of people listening to what are the things that they're looking at and kind of how are we putting all this data together? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So when you look at this, so here's the number one thing make sure you're also assessing protective factors. So we've got two domains. And how we got to these two domains is, we, as any scientist would, we looked at what factors best predict long-term recovery in the science, validated. That led us to nine core factors. Within the pathology, the bad things we want to see coming down, you've got your trifecta, anxiety, depression, stress. We want to assess for everyone, regardless. And then you've got two measures of craving, and that's specific to their drug of choice. So one is more tapping into their cognition's thoughts, almost like automatic thoughts, but about using that perseveration. Oh, I want to drink. I want to drink. I want to drink. So we've got the verbal cravings, and then we have physiological. So we're measuring their reflex and how much craving is caused by showing them five images of their drug of choice. And let me pause right there and explain, because a lot of people don't understand, why would you do this? Are you torturing these poor people? Why would you show them images of their drug of choice they're trying to get away from? If people read the research and found out there's 20 to 30 years of scientific research that says that every treatment center in the country should be doing this. This is a natural process of habituation. So when they are exposed to these cues in a protected environment, it makes the cravings go away much, much faster. 
And so it also habituates it. So when they do see the cue in real life, they have much less of a reaction to it because we've habituated that reaction in a protected environment. So those are the pathology. That's great. That's that's awesome. I just thought <laughs> that's really cool. And it makes sense. You know, yeah, when we sense. look at the process, you know, do you want to see a cue, a needle, a bottle after you're out of treatment and you don't have your group and you don't have your individual therapist mm-hmm. and then you're flooded with these intense cravings? It's terrible. But when we look at what the reaction is for visual cue reactivity in residential over one month, the average reduction is over 70%, that reflexive guttural reaction to these cues. That means when they're out, they're going to get 70% less of a gut punch when they see it in real life. And therefore, it's disempowered. Right. It, it takes that that power away from just just sheer seeing it, you know, a beer can or right. whatever your drug of choice is. Yeah, being able to see it, you're actually now used to that. You've been through it. You know it. And so you're not having that deep, deep reaction. Yeah, you've been exposed to it. And so you've changed your own neurochemistry there and the way exactly. your brain's firing so that that cue no longer fires down the same pathway. Yeah, Dwayne, and, and as a neuroscientist, uh, you know, in, in, in common literature, we know this, that you have physical pathways that are built with different things you experience in life, including addiction. And when those neural pathways are not utilized, they begin to deteriorate and eventually prune. Literally, a physical bridge breaks apart. How does that happen? Through habituation. So that pathway is developed because I see a cue, I get a pleasant reaction. I get chemicals. I see a cue, I get pleasant reactions. But the more that that cue is shown and the brain sees it's not getting that reinforcement afterwards, that pathway begins to fade out. And so that's really what we want to do. And we're talking about physical changes in the brain. And we're talking about something that any treatment center can do, regardless of what company they're using. You can get these drug cues anywhere. Now, of course, we had a great time. We had to produce our own. So we connected with the chief of police and they were kind enough to uh, get a lot of drugs that were about to be destroyed. And I tell you, I've never seen... I felt like I was having a dream or something. I've never seen cops have so much fun making lines of cocaine and bringing things around <laughs> and helping us. They even spilled some of the cocaine on my bag, which to this day I put, do not travel with this bag. Because oh, yeah, they, you don't want that. I don't want any drug dogs at the airport getting confused. Yeah. But being able to to make that realistic. And what's interesting is like I think in the in, you know, once again, going back to our gut, like assuming like, oh, we need to protect people from those triggers. I mean, it, it it makes sense on a certain level, like, oh, but, you know, when we look at the data, that's completely wrong, right? That no, actually, they need exposure. And we wouldn't know that without without data, without testing, without doing this kind of research and seeing that this is really functional. Wow. Well, I just want to say, I, I think we could probably dig in a lot more to this. Is there anything else? I should have asked or you think it's really important for people to understand about this before we kind of uh, wrap up here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's something that I think that I truly do want. Look, it would have been very easy for me to just not even mention the, look, all these companies own your patient data. You don't even own it. But And that would have been very financially beneficial to me. Maybe I'd be on a yacht right now having this Zoom with you. But it's just inappropriate. And so when you look at the data, realize there are things you can do regardless of what 
package or software company you use. And the two things I would highly encourage is number one, make sure you own your own data. Number two, you make sure if the therapists are looking at the data, we literally can decrease AMAs and improve patient outcomes just by making sure they're looking at it. But the third one and what you want to work to do in our field is we're currently in this bizarre situation where essentially the field of addiction medicine is in the stone age. We need to catch up. We can do better so easily. So what this our system does and what any treatment center could do without another company is you, at, you monitor the average change in symptoms for a therapist over a period of time. What happens for depression for the patients, for therapist Johnny, over a typical month? Now what you're doing is you're seeing where the particular skills are with your therapist. Oh, they do great at increasing spirituality. Oh, they do great at decreasing depression. Well, let's get away from this archaic procedure of, all right, who has the lowest caseload? All right. Give them the new person. No, we can right. match together the needs of a patient, what they're struggling with, with the strong suits of a therapist. And this is not rocket science or neuroscience. This is a very simple process of what is the average change with patients with each therapist. Now, let's marry together the patients that need that, that struggle the most in those areas. Makes sense. Makes sense. And they can do it on your platform, which I would imagine makes this way easier than trying to do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the monitoring too, being able to watch, are they looking at the data? How quickly are we collecting the data? I mean, it's it's certainly is something that we're proud of and we've done some great work. We've been, even been able to collect data at a uh, national level for large organizations and uh, we're currently working with Johns Hopkins. That's our research partner, Johns Hopkins Psychiatry. And they're publishing data all the time and finding fascinating information, which we could talk for hours. So, for example, Dwayne, just a little I, sneak peek. Go. They're monitoring. And what they found is if you watch the sleep quality and patterns over time for patients in residential treatment, disturbances in those patterns will reliably predict if someone leaves AMA. Wow. So we need to be monitoring the sleep quality of our patients. All and we of have the ability to do that now with uh, all of our technology. It's not as difficult as it used to be. We can do that. I'm, I'm imagining with some, you know, a smartwatch. Smart smartwatches. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, we can do that without without a lot of complexity. So we need to do that and, and have these outcomes because addiction is a, it's, it's, it's devastating and it's a huge crisis. And so this is important work. So, okay, before we go, I always like to ask everybody one question when we wrap up. And that's if maybe, and you can each choose how you want to answer this, maybe there's someone out there struggling right? That needs some support. You could say one thing to them. What would you want them to know? Or maybe there's a provider out there that's struggling and wants to do better. What would you want to tell them? So I'm going to throw that out to you and you each can answer. Jared, I'll go. You go ahead, Hunter. Yeah. You, go, you go ahead and go first. I would say one thing that really stuck with me was true courage is the ability to know when you need to ask for help versus Pretending that you don't need any help and you hide from the real problems, that's actually definition of cowardice. So do not be afraid to reach out and get help. That is actually a sign of strength, and there are people who want to help. Awesome, Hunter. Thank you. 
Excellent. And I'll say because of my mission, I'll speak more to the treatment centers is we we know what works and we need to monitor our programs effectively. And what worked last year, what we found from the data may not work as well this year. So we constantly need to be in beta, constantly improving our clinical programming, our work that we're doing and how we're doing it with our patients. And it is absolutely easy and critical to monitor how symptoms change and provide individualized care for our therapists. And that all begins with making sure that the assessments you're using are validated, normed, and standardized. We need to make sure what we're trying to measure is reliably measuring those factors. And there are simple things that you can do, regardless of what company you use, that will dramatically improve your program. And if I might just give one, I don't know if you'd call it a plug, because it's not going to benefit anyone other than treatment centers. What I'm finding, because I'm in a unique position where I see the details of treatment centers across the country, obviously I can't disclose how they're doing, that's up to them, but I know what's going on. And I can tell you that for those centers underperforming, it's a very easy fix. I find that those treatment centers that are underperforming, the very most common thing that's occurring is that the structured program is not being conducted as you think it's being conducted. So just to give you a sense, uh, you may have on paper that it says, yeah, we do a anxiety group Tuesdays at 10, but check with your therapist, spot audits what's going on. I would estimate about half of the treatment centers in the country, they're not following any structure. They have it in writing, but the therapists walk into the room and they just go, what do y'all want to talk about today? So it's very difficult right. to make changes in your business if what is being done is not accurately assessed and you make sure that your plans are being delivered as you expect it. Oh, thank you. Yes. Good, good advice. Definitely. All right. Where can people find you? How can they get a hold of you if they want more information about this? Where do they go? Yeah. So you can go to our website, track nine, that's T-R-A-C and the number nine.com. If you're a treatment facility, there is a a link on there. You can request a demo. I give out my personal cell phone at 601-447-8943. If you ever want to talk about Track 9, I'm happy to go over that. Am I forgetting anything, Dr. Dempsey? No, I think that's great. That's great. Yeah, track9.com, T-R-A-C-9.com is the best way to reach. And even if you're just interested in accessing the national norms and you're not interested in using the company, we're happy to give it to yeah, you. Yeah, I'll give my we email. to make a difference in the field in general as well hunter awesome. at track9.com perfect i'll put all those links in the show notes as well at the addictedmind.com so you can check them out there thank you guys for coming on and just uh, doing what you're doing absolutely thank great you so to meet much. you Dwayne. all right everyone thank you for listening to the addictive mind podcast as usual all the show notes will be at the addictedmind.com so check them out what a great episode. I really just enjoyed digging into some of the research uh, about addiction and, and looking at the numbers and seeing how we can create better outcomes for everyone who is struggling. So I hope you got a lot out of this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you did, maybe share the episode with a friend. And don't forget, click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast so you can get all the latest episodes as well. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind Podcast, click join. All right, everyone, have a 
wonderful rest of your day. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.